This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Hello, and welcome back to Elder Sign, a weird fiction podcast by Clay Temple Media. I'm Glenn McDormand. And I'm Renan Buddha. In this episode, we are back with our coverage of A Dead Jaded Cairo by P. Jelly Clark. The story was published in 2016. We've already done our recap episode of the story, so if you've read it and missed that, that's fine. We're glad you're joining us for the discussion episode, because there's a lot to discuss in this story. Before we get into it, I want to remind people as well, of course, that this is a commissioned episode. And well, I guess I say remind people, but really what we want to do is say thank you to the Patreon supporter who commissioned this episode. We love this story. We're excited to talk about it and just so grateful to have the opportunity to do so. Yeah. Thank you so much for commissioning the story. I'm so glad to have read it, but uh, we're here to discuss it. So let's get right into that. Well, as you can imagine, Brandon, in a story that is taking place in a setting that we have not done before, uh, like a real world geographical setting that we have not covered on the show before, and also is taking place in an alternate history version of that, mostly what I want to talk about is the world building <laughs> and, the, and, the, and the setting here. But I also want to talk about genre, which of course is also no surprise to you or our listeners, uh, because I always want to talk about genre whenever there's an occult detective story. So uh, we'll do that part last. We'll start with uh, the world building. And really, I want to get into this by looking at the supernatural elements here, really the sort of more hardcore kind of urban fantasy elements here. And the idea in the story is that this person, Al-Jahiz, found a way to get to the Kaf, this uh, world of the jinn. But this world where the story is taking place already had jinn before Al-Jahiz did this, right? I mean, because there are stories about jinn that, you know, from like folklore, from medieval literature and so on, right? And so now it turns out that at least some of those stories reflected something real, something that Al-Jahiz's steampunk science has opened uh, opened up to us. So I then have to wonder, Brandon, what happened in the past that had allowed jinn to be present in our world, like without this machine poking this hole in the fabric of reality? But then also, on the other hand, what happened to close that off? What do you... You know, how do you think that jinn have gotten into this world before if if these worlds have been closed off? I think that Clark here is playing with the ideas around secularization or the Enlightenment or post-Enlightenment thinking that have a lot to do with disenchantment, uh, the disenchantment of really a whole society that no longer believes in superstition religious institutions, uh, things along those lines that we associate with modernity, but then also post-modernity even more so. And so I think primarily what Clark is thinking is once the world was enchanted, you might stumble across this stuff because uh, people believed that it was real to some degree. And now he's saying, what if it was real in this period of disenchantment, innovation, technological advancements, 
how do we, what would it mean for a modern person to encounter that type of magic in the world, that level of enchantment? And so, you know, in terms of what actually is going on, what happened, I can't say, but it feels like those are the concepts that Clark is playing with. So maybe we can say once it was easier for these types of creatures to come into our world because people had the beliefs, the prerequisite beliefs that allowed them in the world. The magic was still a part of our world. And now in modernity, we need science and invention and some way to force the magic to make this stuff real again. And uh, that's my sense of what's going on here. Well, I think that's an awesome reading of it. I mean, this is essentially how Neil Gaiman does it. Uh, Neil Gaiman, of course, has taken his cue from from Rudyard Kipling uh, on these lines here in thinking about the power of belief, right? Jinns are able to, well, for one, I guess jinns really do exist whether or not we believe in them, but that they perhaps draw some of their power from a belief in them. And perhaps that extra power allows them to cross the boundaries, uh, the, the border here from the Kaf to our world. It may also be simply that, that the reason that we have folklore about jinn or all the jinn that we have folklore about perhaps were brought into the world by humans doing magic or, or alchemy, maybe we might say, uh, a type of pre-modern science that people have simply lost uh, a faith in, lost belief in. And so They've been gone for a while, but then we get this steampunk, uh, part mystic, part inventor who you know is, is representing sort of the most imaginative aspects of both worlds and makes a machine that can do this and and make a permanent hole there. So yeah, no, I think that that's spot on. I think there is definitely some element of belief or faith that is important here, and so that yeah, this is a kind of a critique of the the boringness of the Enlightenment world. Yeah, I, I really think that that concept has become such a, a trope in this type of fiction that it's almost that it's hard to find an author who's going to like explain the mechanics of this because it's just so typical that our mundane world is what it is because we've lost the ability to do magic. But that doesn't mean that there was never magic in the world. And this is something that I think that John Crowley explores really well in his Egypt uh, quartet, too, is this concept that the world did actually change once there was magic. But our global beliefs have shifted so much that it's harder to, to break out of mundanity into wonder or magic. Well, let's talk about angels for a little bit here, too, as I, I have questions about what they're up to, what's going on with them. We get this really great explanation that once these creatures show up on the scene and they are calling themselves angels, that uh, this is something that religious people in Egypt you know, are, are interested in, right? They, they have a belief in angels. It's a big part of both uh, Islam and Christianity. And so... Clark tells us actually that Christian and Muslim clergy in Egypt both uh, investigate this and have pretty big theological debates among themselves and perhaps even with each other about whether or not these self-proclaimed angels are actually angels. Authorities within both religions in Egypt have said that they are at the very least agnostic about the issue of whether or not these really are angels and so are not coming down on the side of these are angels. And certainly our, our, our two detectives don't treat them like they are actually 
angels. In fact, in the the climax, right? Uh, this is something that that Fatma even says. We'll talk maybe more specifically about that. But I just want to take your pulse on this, Brandon. Do you think that these creatures that call themselves angels are actually the angels from Abrahamic scripture, or are they something else? I don't know. It's really hard to say. The characters in the story really speculate about where these angels came from. I mean, there's a big discussion towards the end of the story during the the villain monologue where CT, I think, basically says, like, you just you believe in God the same way you we do. You never met him, you know, things along those lines. But the fact that both the Coptic Christian Church and the Islamic uh, organization, um, the Islamic Church in Egypt, are both saying that these are not the angels we recognize, but there is something essentially other about them, uh, makes me think that Clark is kind of leaning on the urban fantasy angel stereotype, uh, which kind of draws a lot more from Greek god myths like they're just like us but elevated you know have more powers um and and wants those to be the types of creatures in this story more so than uh the angels that you'd find particularly in the christian bible or uh the quran yeah i think there's there's always a difficulty when you're wanting to take supernatural beings that exist in in pre-modern literature and you know, put them into your contemporary story. I mean, you know, by contemporary, I mean a story you're writing around, you know, now you're writing it in your own time, I guess that's kind of obvious, but you know, that you can do that with things that are clearly literature or clearly mythology. But when these are elements of a living religion, a religion that people, a religion that has loads and loads of, of practitioners, that can be a little more difficult to do in a, a way that respects the beliefs of the people practicing that religion. And I think Clark is trying to to walk that line here. And it certainly is something that we see all over our pop culture, usually with, with Christianity. Uh, and I, I was actually quite reminded here of even the way that the TV show Supernatural in its last, I don't know, 11 seasons or something like that is really kind of all about angels and <laughs> but but like really struggles to deal with whether or not the the Christian god really e- exists uh kind of goes back and forth on that in in some ways and ends up I think you know kind of bungling all of that. This seems like this was thought through a little bit better. You're right that Supernatural really bungles its urban fantasy stuff. <laughs> it was worked much better as a horror show, in my opinion. Uh, and the horror episodes, even in later seasons, are still great. But yeah, I struggle with the same stuff on that show. Uh, this is not a podcast about that. But, but I will say that I do think Clark is drawing on that same uh, tradition in urban fantasy storytelling. And you see these types of angels even in... The Bobby Dollar series by Tad Williams, for instance, which is his urban fantasy series about angels dealing with crimes on earth or in heaven. And it's popular right now. And I think that uh, P. Jelly Clark is really careful to say that these beings are in a real place that's historically situated in a certain time that the churches. And religious traditions are the same as we recognize. How would they respond to some being like this appearing rather than in reinventing angels and saying, yeah, all of the, the Coptic church and the Islamic faith believe in these beings as angels? I don't think that would 
work as a reality effect in the story. No, I don't think it would either. I think Clark has made actually all of the right moves here in the way that he he deals with this. And uh, yeah, I think, and and also as you're pointing out, Brandon, right, that he is really drawing on what is the the standard way of doing things in urban fantasy now, both with the the treatment of gin and this emphasis on belief, and then also the use of of angels here. And you know, I invoked Neil Gaiman when we were talking about the gin. Neil Gaiman also has had angels in plenty of his stories as well. I mean, never whereas like a really, really awesome uh, bit with uh, with an angel as well. And so, you know, thinking about the writing in the late 80s and the early 90s as this kind of foundational moment for urban fantasy as, you know, at least a, a, a marketing category, if not actually a genre, Clark is really taking his cues from that, putting a you know, twist on it, making it his own. But really, I think, looking a lot at the, the setting as really where he's doing the sort of original world building here, much in the same way that when I was growing up, I read you know a bazillion fantasy novels with the understanding that, well, fantasy novel means there are going to be Tolkien-esque elves and dwarves where I'm looking for originality and uniqueness from this author is is totally located somewhere else. I am veering us into talking about the speculative world there, Brandon, but I'm not quite actually ready to make that jump yet. I do want to talk about angels, or at least, you know, the creatures we're calling angels in this story a little bit more, because as you mentioned, the maker has this really awesome monologue. I mean, it's basically a mad scientist speech. We talked about it in the recap, but I'm going to actually read it here verbatim because I think it's pretty awesome. So this is what the maker says when he's, you know, Bond villaining, explaining his, <laughs> his, his, his scheme here. Look upon your world, so despoiled, so wanting. You are disobedient, arrogant. You squabble, you war. That is not what he wanted. This is not what he created. He is perfect and could not have made such imperfection. This is your doing, your corruption. And this is interesting, and it's certainly a very cool motive for your villain, but it does not strike me as theologically sound, at least not from a Christian perspective anyway. I don't think it's theologically sound from any perspective, but it's absolutely... Uh, I I don't know, par for the course, I think, for resentful angels. You know, if you think of like the prophecy movies or something along those lines, <laughs> uh, that, that you get the sense that angels resent humans. What this final villain monologue really reminded me of, though, was Agent Smith's speech to Morpheus in The Matrix, where Smith gets to monologue about how you know, the machines created this perfect place for humans and they rejected it. And then they had to make a place with more strife because that's the only thing humans could accept is reality. And Smith just like hates it there. To me, this speech reminded me a lot of that same type of motivation, just the disgust with humanity that is supposed to be made in the image of a, of a perfect being that the humans have totally failed to to live up to the standard of that perfect being in Christianity. Uh, this is, you know, why grace is a thing and forgiveness is why Jesus sacrificed himself. Uh, so it's, it's, it's really interesting to me always when there are angels in stories uh, that are drawing on some kind of traditional, at least Christian in part vision of, angels but the angels seem to not have a uh, a trinitarian theology right where christ is also god um 
but that would work in an Islamic tradition of angels. But I don't know much about Islamic angels. Right. And this is actually something that Brent and I have been talking about a ton over on Hanging Out with the Dream King, which is our Neil Gaiman podcast. And it's also possibly why I can't stop invoking Neil Gaiman on this episode, because we are right now recording episodes on uh, Season of Mist, the Sandman story arc Season of Mist that features angels. And Gaiman does a really great job, actually, of incorporating that from all three Abrahamic faiths. And so that's a place, actually, I think people can can go if they want to hear me talk more about the history of angels and the way that different religions deal with angels. But I wanted to just think here about, you know, even if the maker is really an angel, like these creatures that say they're angels really are angels, the way that they are presented to us in the scriptures of the three Abrahamic religions, something has definitely gone wrong with the maker, because all the religions have a theology that explains why the world kind of sucks in some ways, right? Why we're awful to each other, why why there is evil in the world, uh, this world that was created by a perfect God, right? How do we explain that away? This is you know something that I think all all believers in any religion have asked themselves at some point, right? Uh, how can we think that the person who made all of this is good if there is so much suffering in the world? It's such an obvious question to ask. And all three of these religions have... Uh, have a series of answers uh, about that that are rooted in scripture. And so you would think then that the angel, the angels would be keen on that, right? They would know all about that. They would be hip to the plan. And that is where I thought this uh, this line or this speech, this sort of counter speech from CT is so, so great, right? Where she says, you have never met God. Maybe you are an angel. Maybe there is such a thing as God, but you have never met him. You don't really know what his plan is. And you're as messed up as 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 the rest of us are. And that clearly seems to be true. Yeah, absolutely. Maker is essentially taking the Luciferian line of like, uh, I can I should take God's place. Like I'd be a better God than God. And so that's that's where we get that kind of demonic sense, the mad scientist sense from uh the maker is well, God actually messed up, but I'm gonna do what God meant to do. Even if you've got a, you know break a few eggs to make anomaly here. Let the dark gods in, kill millions and millions of people, and then I'll start from scratch. That is also actually something that the TV show Supernatural does right, as well. Right. So that, that, there's a reason that that's been kind of stuck in my brain here and thinking about the way that Clark is dealing with the angels is that, uh, you know, I, I did, we, we both have said that this is something Supernatural has really bumbled in its, uh, I don't know, 15, 16 seasons or so, uh, though only about two thirds of which were in this more urban fantasy vein, but but kept going back and forth on the, the question of whether or not God is someone who's going to be present in this story. And it ends up being this story, at least for a few seasons, about angels having to operate on their own. And it turns out that they're just as flawed as as we humans are. And yeah, that seems to be at least some tack here that Clark is taking. And and I hope actually that this is something that shows up in the other work that he's done here, because I would like to see more of these creatures. That's my main, uh, I think, interest in reading his novel is him really diving into what is going on with these angels, because it's a really fascinating Part of this story, and I want to be clear, we think Supernatural has bungled it. We don't think P. Jelly Clark has. So uh, that that's why I think we both are really interested in this and want to learn more about what he has in mind for the angels in this world. 
Yes, absolutely. I'm glad you spelled that out because I don't think we were being all that explicit about it. <laughs> we we keep also, on trashing Supernatural, but uh, <laughs> we're, we're not praising the story enough, you know? <laughs> no, it's true. And, and maybe just a note about Supernatural, which is that when we uh, when we lived in Colorado together in our military days, that was a show that we liked to watch together or independently and talk about at work uh, and then continue doing that when it veered away from being a horror show and being a, an urban fantasy show. So it's a it's a it's just a point of reference for us and also kind of the <laughs> right. origin story of of our friendship as as well. Well, let's switch gears here now, or or at least uh, go into the next thing that I want to talk about, which is the speculative world. I think this world that Clark has invented here, I think it is a real achievement. I think it's just so awesome. I want to break it down, and I want to start with the point of departure from our real world. And then the second thing I want to do with thinking about this imaginary world is to look at how Clark still keeps much of the feel of the fin de siècle in this book, I think maybe even transposing some elements that you and I have found in stories that are set, especially in London and a little bit in Paris as well, from around the same time and bringing them here into this imaginary version of Cairo. But the first part of this, Brandon, this is just going to be me monologuing a little bit while I put my history professor hat on. But let me start that actually with just a bit of text. And I read this in the the recap as well, but here's a line that we get in the story, a bit of dialogue here. It's 1912, a new century. Khedives don't run Egypt anymore. The Ottomans are gone. We have a king now, a constitution. Everyone has rights, no matter their work. And then we also get another line. I won't read this one, but we do get another line about how the newly arrived jinn helped the Egyptians uh, defeat the British. And so... I'm just going to explicate some of this, kind of walk through what it is that Clark is is taking as the points of departure here. What is it that's new? What is he replacing here? So Egypt was a part of the Ottoman Empire from 1517 until 1798. 1798 is when Napoleon invaded. And Napoleon's invasion is one of those really weird events that is quite familiar to people, like even people who don't think all that much about the past. But it also is something that doesn't really make any sense, right? At this point, 1798, we're in the middle of the French Revolution, and Napoleon, who's still just a general of the Republic, he decides that it is a good time for France to go build an overseas empire. And that just seems kind of baffling, I think, if you're trying to make sense of the French Revolution, which is something that is extraordinarily difficult to make sense of. But there is actually some rationale to why Napoleon did this. And it was really all about making British shipping, British commerce, maybe I should say, beholden to France as a way of weakening the British Empire with whom the French are at war, because the British Empire definitely does not want a non-monarchical France across the the, the channel. They, what they really don't want is uh, anti-monarch political ideology, violent political ideology spreading. And this actually does work briefly. Napoleon conquers Egypt, but he leaves pretty quickly, like personally leaves, leaves a contingent of soldiers there. They stick around for three years, but they are sent packing. The French are sent packing, and there is now this free-for-all over control of Egypt. The 
Ottoman Empire, which I should maybe say is this is a Turkish speaking empire uh, based in the city of Istanbul, which of course famously used to be Constantinople. So the Ottoman government, the Ottoman Sultan is attempting to bring Egypt back into the empire, but there's also an Egyptian independence movement, people who just want to have Egypt be its own country for the first time in centuries. Then there is also an Albanian warlord who is also, at the same time, a general in the Ottoman Empire and is sort of there on behalf of the Ottoman Empire, but also clearly just wants to conquer Egypt for himself. That person's name is Muhammad Ali, and he actually wins out, although that's not the person that if you were going to bet on here, but this was a betting game, you would not have bet for that person to be the one who was going to actually make it. He's the one with the least amount of logistical support, the fewest number of soldiers, and so on. But Muhammad Ali does win. He defeats the other movements here, and he installs himself as the monarch of Egypt, but the title that he takes is Khedive. And so he is the first of the Khedives that Clark invokes in this bit of dialogue. And so that means then that Muhammad Ali was you know, successful putting himself in control of Egypt. This title Khedive, by the way, I should say, just means something like Lord or Master. It does have a tradition of uh, being used to refer to high-level ministers of the Ottoman Empire. And that is uh, an intentional move by Muhammad Ali. The idea is that although he is essentially a monarch in Egypt. He actually still pays a cash tribute to the Ottoman Sultan and also does some favors for the Sultan from time to time. And so allows the Sultan to maintain this illusion that Egypt is still part of the Ottoman Empire when de facto it is not. Egypt is now operating as an independent country. So Muhammad Ali and his descendants rule Egypt until 1882, so quite a long time, very long time. And Ali and his descendants engage in a really intense modernization program, and they turn Cairo into the Paris of the Nile. This is a, a phrase that people were using in the 19th century to talk about Cairo. They also conquer the Sudan. They, they even try to establish Egypt as this type of imperial state on a par with France and Britain. Uh, this is also the period when the Suez Canal was constructed. The canal was completed in, in 1869. Now, all of this modernizing, all of this empire building, this, of course, took money. And that money that the government was using was mostly borrowed from banks in London and Paris. And so in 1881, there is a coup against the, the third Khedive. And uh, at this point, essentially, the British and the French are, are worried about being able to collect their loan payments. They, you know, they think that if there is, you know, if this coup goes through, there's a new, a new state in Egypt, that state is going to default or, or refuse to make those payments. And so in the summer of 1882, the British invade Egypt and they set up a protectorate. And basically what the British do is they send in a money man to institute, well, one, austerity measures, and then also to govern the country's finances so that the British banks will get their money, get their, their monthly loan payments. And at the time, the, the rhetoric was that this wouldn't take very long, that it was definitely not uh, a conquest, that the British were not interested in adding Egypt to their empire. They just wanted to balance the books and make sure that international finance was all working the way international finance is supposed to be. But the British wind up staying until 1956. So, okay, all of that was just, you know, 
history professor hat on. Let me bring this back to the story and then also into you know something of an actual conversation <laughs> for us to have here, Brandon. So the urban fantasy element in the story, right? This arrives around 1872. But it does seem to me that the incidents up into 1882 must have all happened just as they did in the real world. You know, maybe there were a few minor changes. Uh, Individual people perhaps had slightly different meals for lunch on particular days than they did in real history, right? But the big picture stuff all happens the same. The key difference is, though, that thanks to the jinn, the Egyptians defeat the British at the critical battle of Tel el-Kabir during the, the British invasion. This, Brandon, I don't know if you recognize that name, but this is actually a battle that we've talked about before. We talked about this story, in, uh, or, or rather this battle, in the Robert W. Chambers' uh, King in Yellow story, the story of the yellow sign, where uh, one of uh, the incidental characters that we meet is a veteran of this battle and is is suffering poor mental health from his experience uh, in that battle. So, uh, you know, that that's kind of a, a, a deep, uh, a deep cut, at least in terms of weird fiction, but certainly this is a critical moment in Egyptian history. And so if you're going to tell uh, a counterfactual alternative history, making the thing that is different that the Egyptians won this battle rather, rather than the British is a great way to go. And so Essentially, what's happening here, right, is at least what I'm inferring is that Clark is envisioning an Egypt in which Colonel Arabi's nationalist uprising and coup was actually successful, and that in the early 1880s, Egypt sets up a constitutional monarchy, also a nation state along the lines of Britain and France. And so yeah, here at Brandon, I will come around to an actual discussion as opposed to this, you know, extemporaneous mini lecture here. And the question that I've, I've got for you here, Brandon, is, you know, what are some of the ways that Clark then populates his imaginary Cairo with elements that we have found in stories set in late Victorian and Edwardian London? You know, here I'm thinking of stories from writers like Algernon Blackwood, Arthur Mackin, though we also might even think about, you know, Sherlock Holmes here, even though. We have not actually done any Doyle anywhere on the network, but nonetheless, you know, uh, this is a detective story. I think we can think about Holmes as well. So what are some of the ways that Clark is saying, you know, imagine a world in which uh, Cairo is, well, it really is still the Paris on the Nile or the London on the Nile, I suppose, right? Transposing the, the Nile for the Thames there. What are some of the ways that he's drawing on the literary tradition of this period? I think one of the main things that he's doing is looking at cultural trade as a way to indicate uh, one's status as a, I don't know, great power, as he describes it in the world. You know, Egypt then means that means that Egypt then is on par with uh, the British Empire and France at this time, and they're all competing for global trade dominance, essentially. And so the fashion is one of the ways that he really looks at this. The The role that fashion plays in Fatma's life is she can dress however she wants, basically, but she chooses to dress as uh, basically a British man. She has her suits tailored, as we pointed out in the recap. Uh, but this is to demonstrate one, the absurdity of taking on uh, another culture's fashion on some level when it's not faddish to do so in society. And so I think you see even 
in a lot of detective stories in from this time period, these iconic fashion choices. Poirot has the, uh, the the unfashionable mustache that is just huge and identifies him and his fastidious clothing choices. Holmes with the became associated with the deer stalker cap. These sorts of things that mark people apart um, that are, maybe aren't strictly speaking a part of you know trade between cultures, but still distinguish the character. And so I guess what I'm saying here is that one of the main things we see in this story is that P. Jelly Clark is really looking at the way in which a multi a multicultural cosmopolitan would impact the people who live there, especially members of a ministry or a bureau or something along those lines, uh, where even the way people dress indicates the degree to which they have a, a kind of national pride. I want to talk about the the costuming a little bit before I, I take your wider point here on the cosmopolitanness of of this this version of Cairo here because I had the real sense that this outfit that Fatma is is wearing here in the story is certainly drawing on the Holmes tradition. I I actually thought because of the cane and and the bowler hat that we're really meant to be actually envisioning someone dressing up as Watson, a kind of little Watson cosplay here was kind of my my sense of this. And I actually really, really appreciated that that touch, right? Watson famously uses the cane because it was injured in Afghanistan. And uh, although, yes, people associate that deerstalker hat with Sherlock Holmes, he never actually wears one. I don't think anywhere in any of the stories that's actually right. <laughs> a, uh, uh, a screen. Uh, actually, it might even be a stage, in fact, uh, adaptation. But uh, nonetheless, a... a, a Nonetheless, a hallmark of an adaptation rather than the actual source material. But I thought that was just a great touch. But Clark does it and then also actually makes it mean something in the story as well by making it a commentary on British imperialism and cultural appropriation. But to get back to your your broader point, Brandon, about the cosmopolitan elements that we get here, I think that there is a lot that Clark is throwing into the background of this Cairo that really makes it feel like London of the same era, era and, and Paris of the same era as well. I might actually back us up a little bit before thinking about uh, about people and multiculturalism and actually just think about even the materiality of this. So one of the things that we're told in the story is that uh, Cairo is... Uh, in the process of finishing up installing gas lighting in all of the streets, at least in the the posh districts of the city, and installing that in the buildings as well. And that's something that is new to Paris and, and London at this time, and certainly something that we think of as being kind of a, a hallmark, certainly of, of late Victorian literature, is that, you know, this is the London that's lit by gaslight and, you know, has all this thick fog and so on, gives us this, this moody atmosphere that we associate with that. But one of the other things that we associate with London of this time is massive poverty, Lots and lots of densely populated, impoverished neighborhoods that then also result in lots and lots of of crime, violent crime, petty crime, crime against other people, crime against property, and so on. And those people in 
in London, they have moved there because of the industrialization, because of the the move from an economy that's largely agricultural in nature to one that is industrial in nature. People are having to move from their their homes on farms and, and villages in the countryside and move to the city and are often worse off for it, uh, at least worse off than than their parents were and their grandparents were happily on their farms and in their villages in the countryside, but are feeling the economic pressure to move into the city, even though it's longer hours, terrible working conditions, less money, disease, squalor, material discomfort, and so on. There's definitely that happening in the background of Cairo here. And in fact, it is actually the backstory of Fatma as well, who herself is someone who is from the countryside. And this informs a lot of her relationship with Asim here, who uh, talks about the fact that she has darker skin because she's from the southern part of Egypt, uh, has this accent and treats her as a kind of uh, country bumpkin. And so there are these class tensions and regional tensions that are at play play here that we see in Victorian literature as well. You're absolutely right. And the way that Clark handles these tensions through the investigation of a magical series of crimes is, I think, what really sets this story apart from a lot of other, you know, urban fantasy type stories is the way that he's able to lean on these tropes so subtly to give us a real sense of this place and and this kind of beating heart of Egypt. I just think it's amazing. I think another thing that Clark does really well is to indicate to us through, I don't know, the context of the story that the Coptic church and the Islamic church or faith are kind of coexisting side by side. But it's really more of a cultural identity because then a then a deep faith, and that the national identity is kind of the the core identity that is uh, forming a lot of these characters' relationships with one another. And I think that's another part of that, uh, you know, late nineteenth century, early twentieth century fiction. Absolutely. I mean, that is here front and center. Certainly, we see a real secularization in the two police officials that we meet who are doing this investigating. No one that we encounter is really talking about the the jinn as if they are some kind of their presence, their existence, proof of their existence, maybe, I mean, is is some kind of affirmation of the the truth of Scripture. The same is clearly true with the angels as well. And to the extent that we actually see religiosity in this story, it is eschewing Islam and Christianity both, and actually trying to revive ancient Egyptian religion as a kind of nationalist move. We do see similar things uh, happening in in 19th century Britain, for sure, where people are looking backwards at the pre-Christian traditions of Anglo-Saxons or the pre-Christian traditions of Celts. Uh, I mean, certainly that's like that's Arthur Mackin's whole shtick, right? Is to be looking back at the the truth of folklore about little people and so on. I mean, we haven't done nearly as many of those types of Mackin stories as uh, as he wrote, but we will get to some of those eventually. But yeah, I think that's another great touch that Clark has here is to uh, bring in Ra and and Hathor, of course, especially uh, who's you know, was actually a super important deity in 
much of, uh, of the old kingdom of ancient Egypt was by late antiquity really kind of replaced by Isis. And so I think uh, less less famous than some of the other Egyptian deities, though I suspect that most of our audience is well aware of Hathor because, you know, they've seen some Stargate from time to time. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah. As as perhaps uh, P. Jelly Clark has as well. <laughs> right. Uh, we're, we're in danger of just saying that P. Jelly Clark has written some kind of weird mashup of TV shows that you and I have watched. Though that might actually be true. I think <laughs> might, P. Jelly Clark he, is he kind of like- He probably came of age in the 90s like us, you know, or early 2000s. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. This is actually what I want to ask him if we ever uh, encounter him at a con. I just want to talk to him about the TV that he's watched. But, uh, yeah. <laughs> but all right. I do want to point out a few other things that uh, Clark is doing here by kind of making Cairo feel like London or or Paris, which I think is just such a brilliant move. And one of them is actually to give us these uh, police, these different uh, different types of police. We have two characters here who are essentially cops, but they're cops for uh, two different agencies. But they are they're, they're powerful people, right? The bureaucracies they work for are effective. In their in their government, so there is a sense here of a strong central government with powerful institutions, and the agents of those institutions exert and enforce authority in the world as they uh, encounter it. You know, just on on the street, I guess is the the phrase that I'm looking for there, and that is something that is also happening in you know Findesecla London, Findesecla Paris, where especially in London, the whole idea of policing is actually fairly new. The London police force, I'm simplifying here, but the London police force largely grows up out of the efforts to find Jack the Ripper, to identify Jack the Ripper and arrest somebody. This is really how policing gets started in London. And so it's a new thing. And this is something that shows up in Sherlock Holmes in the way that Doyle has the police be generally incompetent and that, you know, they rely on Holmes. Like, you know, we have this sense, I think, often of Holmes as this private detective solving cases on behalf of, you know, a wealthy clientele, which he does, you know, that's about half the stories. But like the other half of the stories are just the cops come to him and say, we don't know what the heck we're doing. Can you do our job for us? And it's a funny thing, right? When Doyle is using that to be funny, but it's a real part of it. And so I think we get you know, some sense of that here as well, where we get, you know, one of the cops just says, hey, look, we did the bare minimum we're required to do. Uh, it's already a lot of paperwork. I'm going home and going to bed. But then we've got the other cop who is maybe dressed up as Watson, <laughs> who say, no, this is a this is a mission and I'm going to stick with this. Clark also is really keen, I think, here to point out what's become a, a sort of standard critique of uh, policing and policemen in this vein of literature, 19th century fiction, 20th century fiction uh, of mystery and crime novels that primarily police are there to protect the like property and safety of the middle and upper classes and completely ignore the, the situations in the slums, uh, people in poverty and things like that because they don't own property. It's kind of a, I don't know, kind of standard, maybe even almost lazy Marxist critique. I don't think Clark is doing it lazily, but he is here pointing out that the police have avoided so much crime in the slums, in the poor section of the city, to the degree to which they can't even get informants or helpers uh, because they've just it completely ignored their responsibility to take care of crime 
in the whole city. And uh, I really appreciate the way he, he points that out in this story, the way he works it into the story. Yeah, I mean, I think it's pretty clear, actually, that the fundamental thing that police are interested in, because the because Asim keeps talking about it, is political violence in Cairo. We get this mention of uh, an anarchist gang of ghoul raisers, like sorcerers raising ghouls and they're anarchists. There's a lot of talk about Marx here in this in this story, mostly brought up by Asim. We also actually learned that Sudan is an independent country at, at this point. It's not uh, a British possession as it, as it would have been, but also not an Egyptian possession as it had been. It's an independent country that has set up a Marxist state. The, the modest revolutionary people's republic is what it is called called here, which, so that's a really cool counterfactual thing that Clark is doing is saying, yeah, the first, the first Marxist state is not revolutionary Russia. It's revolutionary Sudan by at least five years, but presumably uh, uh, 20 years or, or more. That's really interesting. And then there are also frequent references to the fact that there are Marxists in Cairo who would like to overthrow the constitutional monarchy and install uh, a Marxist state. And, you know, it really does seem like those are the sorts of things that police are interested in. Threats to the state, not not just not crimes of of property and certainly not crimes uh, committed within poor neighborhoods. That's not what they're for. Right, because Sharif is ultimately uh, not worried that a Marxist jinn has killed himself, right? So it's like not something he needs to be concerned about. And that's kind of the 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 question for a big a part of the story that we didn't really uh, lean into. I forgot the degree to which Marx is really invoked in this tale. The jinn is from Sudan. Um, and is, is he involved in this political thing, well, it's much worse than that. He's trying to end the world, right? This not interested in equality on, or equity on any level. He wants the world to end so that he can be reborn as uh, as a high status individual himself in this new recreated earth. And I think that these elements that Clark has thrown in, I mean, these really also are taking their cues from, you know, the types of literature from this period that we have covered on the show. Certainly, Sherlock Holmes deals with, you know, British fears about anarchists and Marxists as well. Uh, But these are things that do show up. Uh, Arthur Mackin deals with this a little bit as well, though not in anything that we've actually covered for the show. Actually, these are things that I think show up in even greater force in the the French literature. Of course, Paris has a very different story than London has in the last third, I guess we'll say, of the 19th century France, or Paris rather. Paris was, in fact, briefly a socialist commune uh, for about nine months. Uh, That's something we're going to talk about as we uh, get a little bit further into The the King in Yellow by Robert W. Chambers. But there's definitely a sense here in which Clark has thought about what were the concerns of London and Paris at this time? How do I transport those to, to Cairo here in a way that you know, is certainly not in any way central to the plot or even important to the plot, but is just giving us the flavor of this. And I, I really love what he's done here. I do too. I th- as we've said many times, I, I really think it's remarkable. Okay. Well, I want to take us on one other tack before we actually start talking about genre, Brandon. And I want to think about the wider world here, right? Clark has shown us really just Cairo. He's given us some information about other places, the Sudan, a good example of that. But I want to think about, you know, 
what other things might be different about the world if the Egyptians defeat the British in 1882 and set up their own constitutional monarchy that uh, is fiscally healthy because it is not giving 60% of its annual tax revenue to British and French banks. What else might be different about the wider world, do you think? It's a great question. And it's not I think deeply explored in this story, but the hint that we get is that uh, maybe the British Empire is beginning to deteriorate more rapidly than is historically the case in our timeline. And that's perhaps because the Jinn are extremely powerful and are 100% in support of Egypt being a global power. Um, so I, I just have to imagine that Egypt is really competing for global resources or trade in the way that you know Britain and France as empires are. Um, you know, who knows if they're you know if the battleground they choose, which would be a really cool story, is uh, you know to battle the westward expansion of the United States or something like that. But uh, yeah, I think in terms of of the the seafaring trade, they're now a major competitor. Yeah, I think there are there are two really interesting things happening in terms of of thinking about the British Empire. Uh, for for one, this period here, right? Uh, eight, well, not the period of the story, but the period of the point of departure uh, in this counterfactual alternative historical Egypt. This is the moment, really, where we get what's called the the new imperialism, uh, or you know, where we actually get uh, the where we get the period of what is called the scramble for Africa, in which the European empires move from having de facto, if not quite de jour, control over port facilities around the coast of Africa and largely dominating Africa through uh, sort of hegemonic power and move to directly annexing every square mile, every square foot of the entire continent by just outrightly overthrowing indigenous governments and uh, conquering places, sending way, way, way more soldiers than they've ever actually had in Africa, occupying places that don't really have even any benefit to be occupied and so on. There are three events that really trigger the scramble for Africa. And the British annexation of Egypt is the third of them. But this, this third trigger did not happen. And so I wonder if the scramble for Africa actually ever happened. And if we ever even get that type of, uh, of imperialism that we really often think about when we think of, of the British Empire. Yeah, that's that's a really excellent point. And then I also wonder if Egypt is uh, a really dominant power, the degree to which they're able to intercede in kind of the heading off of World War One as uh, maybe a, an outsider that can negotiate all of this treaty nonsense that that is the result of all these Western nations uh, gearing up for war. No, this was one of the questions I was going to ask you is, is World War I going to happen? And then even if it is, is it going to turn out the same way? And we don't know enough to know what the, the geopolitics are here. But uh, anyone who has seen Lawrence of Arabia is aware that the British possession of Egypt during the First World War is an important part of how the Ottomans' ability to wage war in Europe is uh 
undermined. And that's an important part of the strategy for defeating the, the, the central powers in the First World War. But in this case, Britain does not have that as a base. But I also question whether or not the First World War is, is even going to happen. Because I actually even wonder at this point about the extent to which the Ottomans are even really acting as an empire at, at, at this point, if there's such a strong independent state on their, on their border. It's clear that Egypt does not control Sudan at this point, but I do wonder if Egypt has conquered other places around it uh, as part of its its program for empire building, which was certainly something that Egypt was interested in in the the real world. And I wonder if that carried over here in terms of uh, is how much of the Arabian Peninsula might actually be under the control of Egypt or the Levant, right, the Holy Land. Is that under Egyptian or under Ottoman? control at this point. Uh, we don't know. I guess the default answer would be Ottoman, but it it may not be. And so this might change the entire calculus of what's happening in the Balkans, the strength of the Habsburg position and and so on. So I have a real feeling that World War 1 is not going to happen in this story. Yeah, that's my feeling as well. I think P Jelly Clark's created a world where <laughs> I don't know, by solving the Egypt problem, he's solved some kind of global crisis as well. No, I mean, I think it's true. And I, I, I think, you know, I'm really hoping that the novella and then the novel that have been written after this do take place significantly after this, to the extent that you and I can go find out what the answer to these questions are. Of course, listeners may actually know them and be, I don't know, shaking heads and or fists <laughs> at, at, at us as we're having this conversation. I think the novel takes place prior to this story. I think it's the uh, Fatma origin story. So maybe maybe it extends further in time, but my, my sense is that it's just a single case uh, that gets Fatma into the, the ministry that she's a part of. Oh, interesting. Okay, because I just really was treating this like this is kind of an origin story. Although, you know, we also realize that we are in the middle. So I guess you can't have it really both ways because she is, it's not her first day on the job. We know that for sure. She's just, she's the person, she's the cop who's been dispatched by her ministry to, you know, check out this corpse. Just was, you know, she had the night shift that week. She's been doing this job for a while. That's really clear. But at any rate, this is a great, I think, launching off point into the last thing I want us to do, Brandon, which is. Uh, to do a little bit of story doctoring. We've actually not done any story doctoring in a quite a long time, I think. And this is largely because we've been letting our supporters choose what we cover now and they make really great choices. So we don't find like we need to try to find a way to make the story that we've just read better. But that's something I really enjoy doing. I really enjoy when we get a chance to do that. Now, to be clear, this story does not need that. It doesn't need doctoring. But I do think, Brandon, that it would be a fun exercise to think about how we could have told this story differently by changing the genre, by telling a story about this plot of the makers, but tell it in a, a genre that is not a police procedural. Uh, I've got some genres I can suggest, but I actually wonder... You know, if there's one that jumps out to you first as kind of a fun alternative for having humans discover the maker's plot. I haven't even thought about this as a possibility. And part of the reason why is uh, I haven't even thought about thinking of this story in terms of another genre at all, which I often do uh, just in my, my writerly, when I put on my writerly cap. But part of the reason why I haven't done that with this story is 
because I've been listening to lectures about, you know, mystery and suspense as a genre. And one thing that the lecturer pointed out that really got me thinking was the degree to which crime narratives are a really excellent way to think about to introduce yourself to society. And Glenn, you actually mentioned something like this earlier, that reading stories like this as an adolescent and in your 20s was a way of traveling around the world and the country, because there's maybe no better way, with the exception of like a really solid travelogue, to feel like you're in a place than to experience its underbelly in a kind of way, um, to have the the values of the detective come forward as, you know, what a place ought to be, to ex- experience what it's not, how it's not living up to the standards, to have its values violated through crime. Um, and Clark does all of this really well here. He does world building via crime. So yeah, that's an such an excellent question, and I'm just not sure how to answer it because I think the genre he chose is so perfect, but I'm really glad you have ideas on this that I can piggyback off of, so I'm going to make you do that. Well, to be clear, the, the default mode that, of course, I go to is, this shouldn't be a police procedural. It should be a private detective story. It should be a hard-boiled yes, detective story, yeah. right? And so, so you're not changing the crime genre. You're changing the subgenre of, of the mode of investigation. That's right. And so as much as I praise the opening of this story, and also just to be clear, I don't want to change a thing about this story. This is just a fun exercise for us to talk <laughs> right, about right, genre right. and storytelling, right? But, you know, so- I, I praised the opening of the story where just, you know, bam, we're right in it. We're just got our main character, a cop, standing over the corpse, talking to another cop, right? Uh, and and then we go. I think that it would be fun to tell this story with, you know, it's the private detective sitting in an office, uh, you know, whiskey, wondering, you know, where's the paycheck going to come from to pay next month's rent? And then in walks a client, and this is how you get into this. And I don't really have any good suggestions about who could be that client, right? Who's a kind of uh, a minor person in this story who might go to a private detective? It would have for to help. be the the Greek prostitute, right? Uh, she's the one who would have to to come in and say, uh, you know, he's he's sleep. The detective. It could be. It could still be Fatma. I shouldn't say he. Fatma's in her office. Uh, you know, smoking a cigarette in bed, trying to fall asleep, and she gets a knock at the door because she sleeps on the couch in her office, wondering because she can't afford to have an office and a place to live. You know, all that all that sort of stuff <laughs> is how is how you kick the story off. But I think that the the ministry here, as clumsy at times as it felt to have. Uh, an organization this large is so crucial to the world building that a whole new bureaucracy has been created to deal with the fact of magic in the world. It's not a trope I especially love. Uh, I like my occult detectives dealing with cursed bracelets and stuff like that. But if you've got magical creatures living in your world, primarily living harmoniously with the society you've created for humans, maybe you need a bureaucracy to deal with them. And certainly bureaucracies are a huge part of of 19th century fiction. Absolutely. And I, I think that Clark has made the right move here in, in actually having this organization. Plus, having that organization then means you can tell an infinite number of stories uh, around this, right? You can 
invent new characters. You can, you know, stop telling Fatma stories at some point and tell them about someone else who works for this ministry. Uh, use the make the ministry itself as actually something of, of a main character. Really, the same way that Ed McBain, who more or less invented the police procedural, does with his precinct, right in his his stories and his actual completely imaginary city. That although it is more or less New York of the 1950s, but uh, that that's the same sort of thing that Clark certainly could do. I think if I were actually going to make this a hard-boiled detective story, though, I would actually have the entry into the case not actually be around this dead gin, but actually have it be around the harvester. That I think that you could have someone from the you could, that you could have someone from the city of the dead, so someone who's poor or in some other way disenfranchised, who's maybe even already gone to this ministry, trying to get some help, but been turned away for all the reasons that we talked about earlier, and now is going to a, a private detective because um, you know this is a person who's gone to visit the grave of a loved one who died recently and has discovered that the grave is disturbed, and actually discovered that lots of graves have been disturbed recently. Someone is stealing corpses. And not just corpses, but but uh, si- other citizens, and I, you know, I'd have to have them pull their resources. So they say you send a representative from, you know, a city block or something like that to the private detective and say, "We all came in on this. We're worried about our loved ones." Uh, and then you really humanize the poor here from the point of view of the poor. And the struggling detective, rather than having the the kind of strong class notes that you get in that section of the story, too. That's a brilliant move, Glenn. That's a really, really, you know, if we were to do that, that would be the way to go. And I think that that's a story that's actually better told in London or Paris rather than in Cairo. I think that Clark has made the right move here because now the focus is on look at this fully functioning Egyptian government that we never got to have because of British banking interests and the uh, violence of the British Empire that was, you know, subservient to those banking interests and so on. That that's clearly, you know, what Clark is trying to show, and so that's the way you have to tell the story that Clark wants to tell for sure. Well, I really did bring this up, Brandon, actually, with an even more specific purpose in mind than just for us getting a chance to riff on genre, uh, and that is actually just to talk about the way that the climax of this story, the finale of this story, mirrors. Lovecraft's real masterpiece novella, The Dunwich Whore, which we've not covered here and I would like to cover someday. So I don't want to spoil for anybody who maybe is has not ever listened to that before, but I will paraphrase what that is in just saying that, you know, there's a similar kind of plot in the sense that there's a being who's, you know, ripping a hole in the fabric of reality and we're all going to die unless people can stop it. And the people who are going to stop it is actually this sort of ragtag band of academics who get together. They've each got different (laughs) specializations and they get together and put an end to this. That's a much simplified way of telling that story. But that was another way that I thought that this story could have been told. You could have told this story, you know, this story could have opened at the University of Cairo. That's another great way into uh, a city. I mean, Lovecraft's use of academics, just the college person doing research, the academic doing research, is another great twist on this kind of crime narrative where they get in over their heads. There's something weird in the town. uh, Something's going on. They're doing a sociological research. I mean, you see that in – particularly, I think, someone like James Rollins's – 
adventure novels where they're all secret agents with you know super good at using guns and all the techno thriller stuff but they all have phds too and get pulled in by their interest in research but also uh their ability to shoot their way out of any situation right and i think if you're going to do that in this situation what you really need is uh, a professor of you know who's who's interested in prophecies knows about this prophecy and happens to also be an avid newspaper reader and sees the reports of this dead gin and also the harvester uh you've got to you got to slow down the time frame i guess there in order to do that but gets interested and wants to investigate and and then does discover somehow you know about the maker to some degree but then faces the problem of okay but like how do i how do i stop this you know i just I just write books and give lectures. Like I don't, I don't know. I don't have guns. I don't have access to anything like that. How do I assemble a team to do something about this? Would be sort of what the the second and third acts would be about, right? Because this this uh, story is basically uh, a season of twenty four, right? It, it takes place over <laughs> the course of a single day, and uh, to slow down the timeline would certainly. Um, that's that's got to be what the novel does, right? Because you have way more opportunity to breathe with the rhythms of the city and to investigate more of Cairo. And uh, I, man, we just are kind of pitching a novel we haven't read, and um, we should really read that book. Right. <laughs> Again, a lot of uh, shaking of heads and fists, I think, yeah. in the audience right now. But I do think you're right there, Brandon, that we, we need to go read that book. And so- Let's go do it. I think we'll uh, bring this episode here to a close. It's going to do it for us today. I'm Glenn McDorman. And I'm Brandon Buddha. You can find us and all our other shows at claytemplemedia.com. And if you, dear listener, would like to commission a bonus episode or two of your own, we would love to talk with you about that. You can get in touch with us via email at claytemplemedia at gmail.com. You can message us on Patreon, message us on Twitter or Reddit as well. And usually this is where I say what we're going to be doing next, but we actually are all caught up with our recording obligations and do not know what is going to come <laughs> after this one. And so uh, we will just say until next time, whatever that is, we greet you and say farewell. <laughs>